First Peter, and let the children be dismissed for nursery. First Peter chapter 1, we started a series last week on the letter of First Peter, a series I've called Standing Firm in the Grace of God, and that comes from the end of this letter, from verse 12 of chapter 5, where Peter says, I am writing you to encourage you, to exhort you, to urge you, and to remind you that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. We looked last week at how it was a struggle for these Christians to stand firm because they were Christians who were scattered. They were Christians who were living in hostile areas. They were wives married to unbelieving husbands. They were servants working for for unbelieving masters and, and bosses. And it was a struggle for them to live faithfully. And they wanted to know how to live faithfully. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage them and to exhort them to stand firm in the midst of hostility. This morning we come to the meat of the letter. We looked at just the short introduction last week and now we begin in verse 3 of 1 Peter 1. We're just going to be looking at a few verses. I think it was William Barclay said in these opening paragraphs of 1 Peter, said nowhere else in the Bible do you find so many important and deep truths packed together tightly like this. And these are some of my favorite verses. I, I know I say that all the time, but of all my favorites, this is my favoritest. Um, I love these verses. So let's read verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1 of First Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's stop and pray before we continue on. God, what we have read is your word. Your word written through your apostle Peter. Your word written through the Holy Spirit. Your word kept for us. This morning we ask that now that same spirit who has written and kept that word would apply it to our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Well, if you have sat through many of my sermons, because first of all, I should say I'm sorry. But second of all, you may have noticed uh, that most weeks I kind of need a story or an illustration or something to kind of get me going. And that's not true only in my delivery of a sermon, but in my preparation. As I try to take all my thoughts together, I kind of need a story or an illustration to get me going. Some people, they write their introduction at the end. I've got to start with it and, and allow it to get me some traction and get me going. And yesterday, I was, as I was beginning to put all my thoughts together um, for this morning, the illustration or the image that came to my mind was this. You can see that. It's a little distorted. But that, of course, is Tom Hanks playing the character of Forrest Gump. And it's this scene that came to my mind, and it's the scene when Forrest begins to run. Gump is telling this story. I can't remember if it's to an old lady or an old man at this point. He's telling this story to someone sitting beside him on the park bench. And he 
he says, that day, for no particular reason, I decided to go for a little run. I ran to the end of the road, and when I got there, I thought, hey, I might run to the end of town. When I got there, I thought, maybe I'd just run across Greenbow County. And then I figured, I, since, since I'd run this far, well, maybe I'd just run across the great state of Alabama. And that's what I did. And I think he keeps talking about running even further than that. But he says, for no particular reason, I just started to go for a run. And I kept running. In some ways, that picture of Forrest running is how I picture the Apostle Peter. He is running. You remember when he heard the news from the woman that the tomb of Jesus was empty. He was no longer there. You might remember that what he did was he ran. Now the Apostle John makes sure we know that he didn't run quite as fast as John did. But he still ran. He ran to the tomb. And when he found out that what the women said was true, that the tomb was empty, and especially once he met the risen Savior who walked out of that tomb, he kept running and he never stopped running. He spent the rest of his life running and declaring the news that the tomb was empty, that Jesus was risen, and that has changed everything. And that picture of Peter running is captured in some ways in uh, this passage that we read this morning. Because what we read in our verses is really one long run-on sentence. Now, it's not that way in the English translations. English translators, they could not handle that. They had to add punctuations. But in the original Greek, all that we read is just one long sentence. In fact, it's a sentence that continues past verse 5 and goes all the way to verse 12. Ten verses of Peter speaking of the resurrected Christ and then just cannot stop talking about what is true because of it. He keeps going and going and going. Not running for no reason like Forrest, but running with a purpose. You might remember in the movie that somewhere along the way a crowd begins to join Forrest in his running and they, they think he's headed somewhere. They think there's a purpose to his running and they're sorely, disapp- sorely disappointed when in the middle of nowhere, Forrest just stops. He just stops. And how true is that and what a picture of that is of so many following someone thinking they're running somewhere and realize they're not going anywhere. Peter says, I am running somewhere. I am taking you somewhere. I'm taking you into the glorious riches of heaven. And he invites us to run there with him. And Peter's running begins when he says or writes this first word, the word blessed. Blessed. That's where it all begins. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as he writes those words, in fact, what's interesting is this is not the longest sentence in the Bible. Paul writes one even longer, but it starts the very same way. Paul and Peter, they say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then they cannot stop talking about why and the reasons they have to bless God. They can't stop. Not even to put a period, not even to put an exclamation point. They just keep going and going and going. Blessed be God. That's where Peter begins, so that's where we begin. Bless God. That's the first point. You may look at that and you think, well, he hit a typo as he was typing that. Why is there a question mark after the end of that first point? And that's not a typo. I meant to put it there because I think we might be prone to ask the question why when we read this statement, bless God. And there's two reasons I think it leads us or two questions that it might lead us to. And, and one is we're just not used to talking about 
us doing the blessing when it comes to our relationship with God. We, we speak often of God blessing us. Uh, we pray and often we pray that God would bless whatever we're praying for. Bless our food. Bless our day. Bless our kids. But when the Bible speaks of blessing passing between us and God, certainly God has blessed us. But most often the language is one of us blessing God. Maybe a better word for it, or at least the word we're more familiar with, it is how uh, the NIV puts it, and that is praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're used to this language, but the, the word that is used here means being praiseworthy and worthy, or one that is to be praised. In the Greek, you can see the English our English word. I'm not going to try to say the Greek word, but you see our English word in that, and it's the word eulogy. We've often attended funerals where a eulogy is given, where words of praise are given to someone that we view as worthy of that praise. And it's this word, this word that sends Peter running in these verses because he begins to think of all the reasons for which God is worthy to be praised. Like the psalmist in Psalm 103, one of my favorite, there we go again, one of my favorite psalms. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Notice the psalmist is telling himself this. He's calling himself to this. And in case he, he asks himself, well, why should I bless the Lord? He says, let me remind you, do not forget all his benefits. And if you would read through that psalm, he begins to list benefit after benefit after benefit of reasons why he should bless the Lord. And in our verses, Peter goes on, and we'll see as he goes on to list the benefits and the reasons to Give praise and bless the Lord. We bless the Lord in response to the blessings that He has poured out on us. Whereas the title of this morning's sermon is, and what we know as the doxology, we praise God from whom all blessings flow. God pours out His blessings on us and our response is one of praise and one of blessing. But there's a second reason I have a question mark at the end of this first point. Not simply because the word is strange to us, but perhaps the location of that word is strange. It might catch us off guard. Because remember where we are. We are at the beginning of a letter that is written for the purpose of encouraging suffering Christians. Christians who are struggling with their faith, they need to be reminded of the grace of God. Struggling to stand firm. Struggling to know how to live. Wanting some practical advice which Peter will give to them. On how to live as Christians. But yet Peter begins this practical letter to them. This letter of encouragement. This letter saying, I know you're suffering. He begins with a hymn of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now if you were receiving this letter from Peter, you might begin to question him at this point. Pete, what what are you doing? What do you mean, bless the Lord? Do you not see the suffering I'm experiencing? Peter, I I know it's good to sing, but right now what I really need is some practical advice on how to live. Peter, the band is warmed up, I know. They're ready to go, but is now really the time? Just tell me what I need to do. Just tell me how to endure. Tell me how to stand firm. Tell me how I'm going to survive this storm that I'm in. Peter says, you don't understand. This is how you survive. This is how you endure. This is how you stand firm. You stand 
firm by beginning with praise. You get your eyes off your trials and your eyes onto the blessed God and you praise Him. Some have said that we need to stop spending so much time telling God how big our problems are and start telling our problems how big our God is. And I like that, but I would say, let's do both. It's okay to God, tell God how big our problems are. He, he wants us to tell Him how big our problems are. But in the midst of our problems, He wants to remind us of how big and how great He is. Praise Him. Bless God. Paul and Silas, when they were bound in prison, what did they do first? They began to sing praises in the night. Jesus, as He looked ahead to the cross that was laying before Him, knowing what was going to await Him that night, the Gospels tell us that Him and His disciples sang a hymn, and then they went out to pray. Faithful living, obedient living, hope-filled living begins with praise. Doesn't just begin with praise, it's fueled and continues with praise. And notice two things about this praise in verse one. Peter praises God, first of all, for who he is, and second of all, for what he has done. Peter blesses God for who he is, and he blesses God for what he has done. Now, if doxology seems like a strange place to you to start this letter, it might seem even stranger to start with theology. But yet that's where Peter begins. He begins encouraging suffering Christians by reminding them who God is, which is really all theology is. All theology is, is the study of who God is. Theos is Latin for God. Ology is Latin for the study of. So theology is the study of God. And some people would dismissively say, well, I'm not a theologian. And perhaps you've said that. A question is asked and you either don't want to answer or you don't know the answer. And you said, well, that's above my pay grade. I'm, I'm no theologian. That's not really a true answer. Because every single person is a theologian. Everyone has an understanding or a belief about God. The question isn't, are you a theologian? The question is, are you a good one? The question isn't, do you have a theology? The question is, do you have a correct one? And Paul tells us that we need to not only make sure we have a correct one, but we need to be growing in our theology. We need to be a a learning and improving and advancing theologian. We need to be increasing in the knowledge of God. A.W. Tozer famously said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And this is true especially when we're suffering, like Peter's readers were, or when we're in the midst of a difficult situation. We must know who God is, and we must respond to who He is with praise. One of the most beneficial things that you can do for your spiritual life is to include in your devotional time a study of the names and the characteristics of God. You don't have to do this all the time, but maybe for a season Study and think about and meditate on the characteristics and the names of God. We did this for a while in our Wednesday night prayer meetings. Um, we, we started each meeting thinking about a name or thinking about an attribute of God. And then we responded in prayers of praise for who He is. On the back table I printed out amongst all the, the Bible reading plans that are back there in the center. There's this 
resource that I use for that. It's put out by the Navigators. And it's 30 days of praying the names and attributes of God. And just encourage you to take one of these and maybe for a month, every day, just read and meditate on a name or attribute of God. It gives the name, it gives a description, and it gives a reference. And maybe add to that a, a book going through the names of God. I've got a few on my shelf I wrote down quickly this morning. And there's many more you could go to, but ones that I have found helpful are uh, A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. A great book on the attributes and characteristics of God. A.W. Pink has a good book called The Attributes of God. Jen Wilkin, I think Larry, your Sunday school went through a class called None Like Him. Ten ways that God is not like us. Ten, ten characteristics of God that are true of Him. And then my favorite book, one I recommend whenever I can, is J.I. Packer's Knowing God. But I would encourage you to think about and meditate on and know who God is and how God has revealed Himself in His Word. Bless God for who He is, but also, Peter reminds us, bless God for what He has done. Bless God for what He has done. The first half is who He is. The second half is what He has done. But the second half actually leads us into the rest of our verses. In 3 through 5, I want to put under three main headings what Peter says God has done for us through Jesus Christ. I'll give you the headings now and then we'll go through them one by one. But first he points to what God has given us in Jesus. Second, he points to what God has guaranteed us through Jesus. And then lastly, he talks about how God has guarded us in Jesus. First of all, he says, bless God for what he has given to you. And he has given us three things. He has given us Great mercy, you can see them in verse 3. He has given us a great mercy, a new birth, and a living hope. First, He has shown us great, incredible mercy. Maybe this shouldn't be under the category of what, but how. Because what Peter is saying is that it's according to His mercy that He has blessed us. We're highlighting the words great mercy, but don't overlook the words according to. According to. Notice that it does not say out of his great mercy. I don't think there's any translations that say that there might be, but if they are, they're, they're, they're not quite accurate. They're not quite catching the meaning of what Peter is saying. He's saying it's according to his great mercy. Now that might not seem very significant, but if a, if a billionaire was to come up to you and says, I'm going to give you something out of my great wealth. You might be excited, but you wouldn't know what to expect. Because he might give you $10. And he would have been telling you the truth. He went to his billions and he gave you something out of it. He gave you a portion of his wealth. A small portion, but a portion. However, if a billionaire came up to you and said, Hey, look, I am going to give you according to my great wealth. Well, then we'd have reason to be excited. Because he's not talking about a portion But he is talking about proportion. He is going to give you in accordance with, in proportion to what he has. And he has a lot. And God says, I am going to give you in proportion to my great mercy. And when great is used to describe anything of God, we know that the measurement is infinite. His mercy is infinite. It's in proportion to his infinite mercy that he is going to give to us. 
But what is mercy? And that's on the screen already. You can see the word and what it means. The word mercy means the outward manifestation of pity. Notice it's not just a feeling of pity. It's not just the emotion of pity. We might walk by somebody and feel pity for them, but continue on. That's not mercy. But mercy is feeling pity towards someone and then going to do something about their pitiful condition. God did not simply look down at us and say, would you look at how pitiful these people are? What a shame. And then move on about his day. No, God did something to act on his pity for us. He did something to remove our pitiful condition. He sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, which held us captive in that condition. You read this and you say, well, how great is the mercy of God? Peter says, look to the cross. But also remember to ask the question, how great is your need for the mercy of God? How pitiful is your condition without him? Once again, look to the cross. Where the eternal son of God came and became human and died for our sins. That was what was necessary for us to be in relationship with God. Necessary for us to have hope and to have life. God has shown us great mercy. And in His great mercy, He has removed our pitiful condition by giving us new birth, which is the second thing that Peter highlights that we have been given. He has caused us to be born again. Jesus told Nicodemus that unless one is born again, they will never see the kingdom of God. Which tells us and which reminds us of what Jesus says. We must be born again. This is not an option. We must be born again. We must have new birth. Nicodemus was confused by this. And if we're honest, we're confused by what that statement means as well. There's a lot of things we could say about it, but I love what William Barclay says. He says, whatever else new birth means, it means that when a man or woman becomes a Christian, there comes into his life a change that is so radical that the only thing that can be said is that life has begun all over again for him. Something radical has taken place in this individual. And something radical must take place, Jesus says. If we want to see the kingdom of God, we must be born again. In the margins of one of his Bibles, Martin Luther wrote this note. He wrote, born once, die twice. But born twice, die once. What he means by that is if you only experience physical birth, you will experience not only physical death, but you will also experience eternal spiritual death. You will experience Two deaths. However, if you are born again, if you experience physical birth and then spiritual birth, if you believe in Jesus and receive the gift of new life and are born again, though you will still die physically, you will live forever in eternity. You will not suffer eternal spiritual death. We must be born twice. We must be born again. We must have new life. And Peter says, this is what God has done for us. He has given us new birth. Peter, or Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. This is why we need new birth. Because we were dead. We were all spiritually born stillborns. 
Physically we had life. Spiritually all we had was death. But God, rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Peter says, if you're going to live as a Christian in this world, you must remember that God has given you new birth. You have been saved by grace through faith. And this new birth has placed us and transferred us into the realm of hope. Paul, I think it's in Colossians, says we once walked and lived in the kingdom of darkness. Now we live in the kingdom of light, which is a kingdom that is filled with hope and with a living hope, Peter says. Psychologists will tell you that one of the most essential things that a human being needs for survival is hope. We need hope. Viktor Frankl wrote a memoir about his time spent in Auschwitz through the concentration camps, and he said what kept people from, from living or dying was whether or not they still had hope. As soon as they lost their hope, they died. Even, though, even in the midst of the horrors of the concentration camps, those who held onto hope lived. But hope is only as good as what our hope is placed in. You know, if I'm trying to cross a, a gap of some sort and I put a, a, a little one by three out between those gaps, it doesn't matter how great my hope is in that one by three. If I step on it, it's going to break and I'm going to fall. But, but if I go to cross the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and even though I, I'm a little leery about that bridge at times, and even if I, if I go and I'm, I'm trembling as I begin to take that step and I do not have much hope, The bridge will hold me because what my hope is in, as little as it is, is strong. What matters most is not how much hope you can muster up, but where you attach your hope to. I read a story in an old daily bread about some mountain climbers who were climbing a dangerous or descending down a dangerous descent in the Swiss Alps. And they were all tied together with this alpine rope. And as they were descending, one lost his footing and began to fall. And as he fell, two more were pulled over the ledge with him. And the the three that were left on the ledge, they knew what was coming. So they, they, they braced themselves, ready to bear the shock, ready to bear the weight. But when the rope ran its length and it became taut, the rope snapped. And the climbers watched as their friends fell 4,000 feet to their death. Took them a long time to gather their strength to continue on, but once they did, they, they, they got to the nearest town and they pulled out that rope and they began to look at it. And they realized why they had failed. Because true alpine rope, it has a red strand that runs through it. But this rope did not. The author in this devotional said it was a weak substitute. And therefore it failed when it was put to the test. Last year and the year before that, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes and we saw what happens when our hope is placed in weak substitutes. When our hope is placed in anything of this world, eventually our hopes will be crushed. But if your hope is in Jesus, then it is the one who has faced the greatest enemy we will ever face, which is death, and has walked away victorious. Our hope, our living hope, is in a living Savior. 
Gene Gens writes, When a Christian truly understands the hope that he has in Christ, it results in a steadfast sense of security and stability. Peter reminds those who are suffering and those who are in the midst of trials, he, he says, do not forget what you have been given. You have been given a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Don't forget what our hope is attached to. Think about Peter, the one who's writing this letter and what his hopes were before the resurrection. Peter, he, he ran to the cross of Jesus and he saw his friend and his Lord and his Savior dead on the cross, knowing that he had helped put him there. And at that moment, all of Peter's hopes were crushed. Let's read the account of what he spent those three days doing, just in darkness, wallowing, because he was hopeless. But Jesus did not stay in the tomb. He did not stay dead. He rose, and with his resurrection, Peter's hopes were resurrected as well. And Peter says that not only hope is our hope a living hope and that it isn't dead, but it is a hope that gives us life. So this word living hope means. It gives life to those in, who inhabit it. The Puritan Thomas Brooks says of this hope, hope can allow us to see heaven through the thickest clouds. God has given us great mercy. God has given us new birth. God has given us living hope. Tom Schreiner writes, It is an inestimable, inestimable, I didn't write this because I can't hardly say the word. It is an inestimable privilege and joy to be the object of God's mercy. Or as Sinclair Ferguson likes to say, It is a wonderful thing to be a Christian. Do not forget that. It is a wonderful privilege to be the object, the object of God's mercy. It's what God has given us. But what has He guaranteed? God, bless God, Peter says, not only for what He has given, but also for what He has guaranteed. And what He has guaranteed is that there is an inheritance that is in heaven waiting for us. It is kept in heaven for you. Other translations say reserved in heaven. The word means that it's ready and it's waiting and it has your name on it. On the other side of suffering, there is an inheritance waiting. On the other side of the pilgrimage through this world, Peter says, you have a great treasure that awaits you. One commentator pointed out that not many of us, and we probably would all agree with this, not many of us like reading legal documents. We've all gotten to that point in signing papers where we're not reading the fine print anymore, we're just signing our name. But he said, there's one legal document we read, all the fine print. We read it from cover to cover and make sure nothing is missed. And that document is a will that has our name on it. A will that has us listed as the beneficiary. And Peter says, listen to the inheritance that has your name on it. He uses three words that, to describe it. He says it's imperishable, it's undefiled, And it's unfading. First, he says that this inheritance is an inheritance that is untouched by death. It's an inheritance that will not and cannot perish. Everything in this world will eventually perish. And long before it does perish, we begin to see the effects of perishing. Maybe you look in the mirror every day and you begin to see the effects of of perishing in this world. It 
life begins to fade. We have some flowers on our windowsill that I bought three weeks ago tomorrow at Trader Joe's. And we've marveled at how last long these flowers have lasted, but I noticed yesterday that these flowers, though they've lasted a long time, are beginning to show signs of perishing. And most likely this sometime this week they'll be thrown away. So it is with everything in this world. Eventually it will perish, even us. It will fade. But not so with our eternal inheritance. The word that is used here for imperishable was a word used in secular Greek to describe an area that was unravaged by an invading army. An enemy army would come in and they would wipe nearly everything out. Buildings were ransacked, homes were destroyed, streets were left a mess. But the areas that were left untouched, they were the imperishable areas. Peter says your inheritance is in a place that cannot be touched by the enemy. It cannot be ravaged by by the foe. It cannot be destroyed. It is imperishable. I was in college in, in Georgia in 2004 when Katrina, Hurricane Katrina swept through, uh, swept through Louisiana in that area. And on our spring break, we went to Waveland, Mississippi to help with some of the cleanup and giving out food. And I remember taking a drive uh, a mile inland in Waveland, Mississippi and seeing the devastation that the hurricane had caused. And like, and 20 to 30 feet up on the trees, you could see the marks. I remember they said we were in front of like a Walmart. And they said they found a dead cow on the roof of, of the store after the water had subsided. But I'll never forget, we were driving in this area that was completely ravaged by the storm. And there in the middle of nowhere, there stood this concrete object. And the one giving us the tour said that was a bank at one point and that was the vault. Everything around it was destroyed, but the, the vault Remains, and I would guess whatever was stored in that vault remained. And Peter says, that is a picture of what I am saying. Place your treasure in something that cannot be ravaged, that cannot be destroyed. Place your treasure in the vault of heaven. Our inheritance cannot be affected by death. It's unaffected by evil. It's undefiled. That means it's unstained by sin. It it cannot be stained by sin. Everything in this world is stained and marred and destroyed by sin. But we are headed to a place that sin cannot touch. It's hard to imagine what that will be like, isn't it? A place that is unaffected by evil. You know, we've seen the devastation of trying to go without law enforcement here in this world. We're going to go to a place where there is no need for law enforcement, a place where there is no need for prisons, a place where there is no need to lock your doors at night, a place of perfect peace because there is no evil. An inheritance that is unaffected by evil and an inheritance that is unimpaired by time. One of the commentators, the translators, says that this word means it will not lose its brightness, it retains its wonderful character. we're, We're less than a month away from Christmas, And already we look at toys and gifts and things that were given, that were celebrated, that were praised, and now they're kind of tossed aside because we're already bored with them. They've lost their brightness. They've lost their their wonderful character in our eyes. They've begun to fade. 
Not so with the inheritance that is waiting us. For eternity, we will never get bored of it. For eternity, it will never grow old. It will never fade with time. Peter was writing to those who who might have lost their family inheritance. In that day, inheritance, much of it was found in land or property. And many of them, remember, they're scattered. Many of them had, had to flee and run for their lives because of Christian persecution. They had left their inheritance behind. But Peter says, do not forget a better inheritance is coming. Or as Paul writes, don't forget what no eye has seen nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined. This is what God has prepared for those who love Him. It's greater than you can imagine. It's better than anything you've ever seen. It's even better than anything you've ever heard about. God has it waiting for us. It's reserved. It's ready. And finally, not only is our inheritance being kept, but Peter writes in these last, this last verse, verse 5, that we, as we journey there, are being kept. Verse 5, he says, Bless God for how He guards us. Who by God's power, in case you're forgetting who the who is, we are the who. You are the who if you have been born again to a living hope. And you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This word guarded means kept safe and carefully watched. Again, remember the readers of this. Those who are scattered. Those who feel like they are in exile. Those who are, who are hated by their neighbors. And God says, I see you and I am keeping you safe and I am watching you. Peter Davids writes that the picture, writes that the picture is that of a fortress or a military camp and they are within. Outside, the evil forces are assaulting them, but on the perimeter is the overwhelming force of the power of God. He it is who protects them. They receive His protection simply through faith. That is, through committing themselves in trust and obedience to God. They may seem vulnerable to themselves, and indeed in themselves they are. But God's goodness and God's protection surrounds them. He will do the protecting. There's a song, not written by Michael W. Smith, I found out, but made popular by Michael W. Smith, that reminds us that we fight our battles surrounded by God. In this line of the song, it says, It may look like I'm surrounded. With human eyes, with earthly eyes, with my own eyes, it might look like I'm surrounded. But I am surrounded by you. That is a good reminder for us. We live our lives here in this world surrounded by God. He is guarding us. Very quickly, just notice two ways He guards us. He guards us by His power. We are guarded by God's power. Don't forget what His power is. His power is an infinite power. It is the power of the Almighty God. I love what, what William Gurnall, Gurnall says in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor. He says, one almighty is more than many mighties. Never forget that one, you, you might have many mighties against you, but one almighty is greater than them all. Or like Jeremiah says, there is none like you, O Lord, for you are great and your name is great in might. No one can match the power of God, and He wields His power to guard His people. 
But notice also Peter says that he guards his people through our faith. And you're seeing the last point up there as well. He, he guards us by his power, but we access that power through our faith. And again, just like that image of where, what our hope is in. It's not the strength of our faith that determines the outcome. It's the object. It's the strength of the object of our faith. What is your faith in? So many, they say, well, I have faith in what you, what it boils down to is that they have faith in faith. They have faith in their faith to have faith in the midst of a circumstance that tries their faith. Your faith must be in something that is worthy of faith. Your faith must be in God. And though you may be weak, the promise is that when we are weak, if our faith is in God, He is strong. And I am strong. He guards us by His power through our faith for a salvation that is ready and waiting for us. I love the way He ends this verse. Of course, He doesn't end it. He keeps going. But I'm going to end this here. He guards us for a salvation that is ready and waiting for us. It's the same word that Jesus uses in His parable when He says... That he, he, that he says to the servants, the wedding feast is ready. Problem is, those who invited were not ready. The question is not, is, is our inheritance ready? The question is not, is, is God ready for us? The question is, are you ready for Him? Later on in First Peter, it will say that God is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's ready. Are you ready for that day? The feast... Jesus says has been prepared. The dinner bell is ready to sound. The question is, will you be ready to eat? Will you be ready for that day? Have you been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? If so, then Peter has good news for you. An inheritance is waiting. It's just around the corner. You are almost there. What has God given us? Out of His great mercy, He has given us new birth and a living hope. What has God guaranteed those who remain faithful to Him? He has guaranteed that there is an inheritance that is untouched by death, unaffected by evil, and unimpaired by time. How does God guard us? He guards us through our simple faith connected to His almighty power. So what should our response be? Our response should be blessed. Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or as I'm hoping John will lead us after we pray, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great mercy that saw us in our condition, saw us in our helplessness, saw us in our, our, our inability to overcome our sin. And you came and you sent your Son, Jesus, for us to die for our sins. But not only that, but you sent your Holy Spirit to to open blinded eyes so that we can see. Opened our hearts to receive. Father, we're so grateful for your mercy. May we never forget it. Though life in this world is difficult, though life in this world is hard, we have an inheritance awaiting us. We have a treasure awaiting us that cannot be touched by the things of this world. It's ready. And God, we say we're ready for it. I pray that that's true of everybody in here. But God, we're longing for the day when we
can sit at your table at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. We long to be with you for eternity. Praising your name, for you are worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand and as our benediction, let's sing sing the doxology. Praise God.